Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's a treat to have you here. And if you're new to the show, the hugest of welcomes. Just to give you the heads up, if you sign up to the H&P newsletter, you're in with a chance of winning one of our chocolate bars. So quick question, how many of you spend over the odds for your cosmetics, in particular your foundation? That includes you too, guys. It's an easy thing to do, don't you think? And does it even match your skin tone? I discovered recently that foundation is the most purchased product in the makeup industry and finding the right one whose pigment blend works for your skin tone a challenge up until very recently. It's led me to our guest today who saw a massive gap in the billion dollar industry and one which she was determined to fill. Our guest is a trained makeup artist, a biochemist and founder and CEO of the multi-award winning makeup brand, which was the first to develop a foundation for olive skin tones. Named on NBC's Today Show as one of the top five most disruptive beauty brands in the world, her fans include Adele, Michelle Obama, Margot Robbie, Rami Malek and Holly Willoughby, the host of ITV's This Morning Show, who says celebrities can't live without it. Swept up by the world's largest beauty and health retailer, A.S. Watson, they're now rolling out to 250 locations in the UK, as well as launching in Dubai. So time to introduce our guest, Farah Nars, founder and CEO of X1 Cosmetics. Hello and welcome to H&P Farah. Hi, Amelia. Thanks for having me on. It's lovely to have you. So, Farah, can you tell us how does a biochemist end up founding a makeup company? Well, it was something that I definitely didn't plan. It was something that I very much fell into being at the consumer end of it all. So I was just, you know, a very passionate beauty lover. I had slightly sensitive skin growing up and I could just never find a foundation that covered my blemishes. And when I did, it was, it, you, you would be able to see the foundation. It would really, really show. And fundamentally, it was either always too pink or too orange for my naturally olive skin. And I couldn't understand how in a billion dollar industry where, you know, brands were launching, new mascaras giving you 85% longer lashes, how a product that is so critical in so many women's makeup bags was just completely being overlooked. And that's really what prompted me to innovate. I took a journey off to um, Milan in Italy, which is home to the best quality cosmetics in the world, and teamed up with a team of top European scientists. And it took two years of sort of blood, sweat and R&D to, to curate the range that we have today. But when you were studying biochemistry, did you know that you would end up in the world of makeup? Gosh, absolutely not. I've never been one of those people that plans my life um, particularly in advance. So this was just, you know, it was just, I, I enjoyed biochemistry. I've always had a very curious mind. I think doing a degree in biochemistry really sort of satisfied my need to want to understand how the world worked. And, you know, it was that same curious mind that was always asking questions about everything in life, you know. And when I wasn't able to get the answers that I was looking for, 
that's when I just couldn't accept the status quo answer, which was that, well, that is just the way things are. And, and when, when the answers didn't really make sense, that's when I decided that I wanted to change things. And your story is a is a very interesting story because you started the business up, then you put it on hold, and then you sort of regenerated it again. I mean, you were at a trade launch, eight and a half months pregnant, and the products were immediately picked up at that stage by retailers, including Fennec. You were in 220 stores in the first six months, aged just 25. You then make a big decision to stop the business to raise your two children. How easy was this decision to make? And were you ever tempted to bring in a CEO to cover that time? Yes. I mean, I would say it, was, um, it wasn't a difficult decision to make, but it was a painful one because I'd already invested quite a lot of time and effort and just mental energy. And I was so passionate about the concept, but it wasn't a difficult decision. And so much as I knew that having a young family, that was my priority. I'm very passionate about my business, but I think family is always first. I knew that if I was to sort of give that period of my life up, it would be a regret that I might have and I didn't want to take that risk. So yes, even though we were thriving, I made the decision to park the business. And I think I got some comfort in the fact that I knew it was something that I was always going to go back to. So I I wasn't completely signing it away. I hadn't completely buried it. I knew that I would at some stage go back. But you weren't tempted to bring in anybody to run it. I think when you're at a very early stage of your business, the founder is so important to, you know, in all areas of the business from developing the concepts. And it really is, the brand identity is very much almost an extension of yourself to some extent. You know, elements of your personality will come through and you're making key decisions that will shape it. And I think that at that stage of the business, it would not really have built the authentic brand that I think it is today. It came from the heart, really. And For that to come across, I think I would have had to have sort of taken on a very hands-on approach to build a brand that I really wanted to build. And so it it didn't feel right at that point for me to, to take someone else on that would develop the sort of early stage side of the business. And what was it, Farah, that then pulled you back out from your home to regenerate it, relaunch? And did you get the same sort of instant pickup response that you did before? I think the pull really came from the fact that years were going by and I kept thinking every year that, right, someone's going to do this. Someone will just come in and do this, but no one ever did. Then I took myself off to the British Library. They have some amazing resources on the first floor. They've got all these sort of great market reports, Euromonitor, Mintel, Data Monitor. Being the geek that I was, I got my hands on all the market reports because even though I had an instinctive understanding of you know, feeling that myself, friends and family all experienced this problem. I just wanted to make sure from a market research point of view that I was correct. And when all the reports were saying there's a burgeoning demand for something like this, that's when I realised that, you know, there really is scope for me to do something about this. And that's what really gave me the kind of um, zeal to really get back into it again. I mean, isn't the British Library amazing? I use the BI, mm. I use them. I mean, I, I they were supportive <laughs> of me, um, you know, the, the BIPC. And, you know, they were incredible. I was doing some mentoring with them. But it, for anyone who needs to get really meaty research, it's free. You just get your card and in you go. And they're so helpful, aren't they? I agree. I mean, I've been using the British Library from 
I mean, it's one of the first things that I ever did, even when I was 25, was I went off to the British Library. And as you say, they are just so incredibly helpful. There is, it's just a treasure trove of like information. You can find pretty much anything there. And so it was such a fantastic resource. Super grateful to the guys at the British Library. Would would totally recommend it to any sort of budding entrepreneurs out there. Did you know that you wanted to run your own business when you were younger? It depends how how young we're talking. Um, I think at the I've I've come from sort of to some extent a family of uh, people that were entrepreneurial. My grandfather was an entrepreneur, though my father wasn't necessarily. What did your grandfather do? He was a businessman in various fields, a lot of FMCG, so he had a honey business and a lot of other businesses which were to do with all sorts of minerals and things like that. But he was very, very entrepreneurial. And And I think that although I never really had a vision of myself as somebody that was running a business, you know, I am told that when I was quite young, I was always, you know, kids would be drawing pictures of stick men and flowers, and I was drawing sort of company logos. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was forever looking at things that I could create. So, you know, I had every sort of possible idea. I love to bake like all kids do. And I thought, right, I'm going to start like a, a cake company. And it was just this I think I always had an inner desire to create and innovate. So there was that side of me, but I actually never really took many steps towards it until um, it happened with EX1 and uh, and then I just sort of fell into it. But no, it wasn't really planned as such, but I, I, I can't really say if it's innate or not. It's really, really difficult to, to say if that's the case, but it does feel like there is a little bit of something there which is 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 inexplicable, really. I was always drawn to it, I would say. Do you have siblings? I do have siblings, yes. And are they running their own shows? My brother has his own business in sort of uh, a completely separate field, um, but I I wouldn't describe it as sort of entrepreneurship in the way that I am an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sister's a dentist. So, so, yeah, it's pretty much just me. (laughs) A good mix. Mm. Farah, how have you found growing the business compared from the sort of startup phase? I think there's always a type of growth going on in any startup business. And I think those stages of growth differ dramatically and you're faced with all sorts of differing challenges depending on what your next milestone is going to be. I think, you know, from a growth perspective, I think when you hit a point when you're really looking to scale, I think that's when you see the most transformational change. And that's when potentially you have to really be prepared for kind of the rocky road ahead because when you have rapid change, it can be quite unsettling and you've got to make sure that you've got the infrastructure in place to support that growth. So as founders, sometimes we're so focused, as was I, on, right, right, need to need to grow. Just I just, I just wanted everyone to know about these products. And you really have to actually take stock, make sure that if I do get that amazing distribution contract, if I do land the next 100 stores, do I really have a business? Do I really have the resources, the capacity to be able to support that and maintain that growth? Um, so I think, yeah, the challenges really do vary at different stages. But I think that probably the challenge that we've most recently faced has been making sure that you have the infrastructure in place to support massive change. And you've had to raise funds, presumably, to get the business to grow? Correct. So we've raised rounds of funding. My first round was around 250,000. We've now raised approximately 5 million, which has been over uh, a number of years. How have you found that? The first round was definitely the hardest. I think at that point you are reaching out to investors who 
you know, literally know nothing about your business. You have nothing tangible to show people. You just have a concept. And I think that first round is very difficult. And actually, I... I was doing everything I possibly could. I literally phoned, I think, every single venture capital company in the country that I could get my hands on and internationally and had an awful lot of rejections at that, at that first stage. I think that, that was at a time when everybody really was quite tech-focused and people didn't really want to invest in beauty. It felt very risky at that point. And eventually, after several cold calls, we had a venture capital company that was based up in Sussex that was really taken by the concept. And after several months of sort of DD and due diligence and back and forth to Sussex, um, they made me this offer. And I actually declined the offer in the end. They were a fantastic team, but there were a few things in the clauses that just felt a little bit heavy handed. And so I decided to pull back from that. But I think because people knew that we had had an institutional offer, I was then able to, without really revealing the intricacies of my, my, my you know, negotiations with them, mm -hmm. I was able to sort of raise money from high net worth um, investors. And that worked incredibly well for me, I have to say, because I think some of those investors really began to feel almost like co-founders, sort of co-founders from a distance, um, and really proved to be an amazing support for me over the years. How did you cope with the rejection, Farah? Well, it's a good question. I think I've just been somebody that has never really let rejection get to me. And perhaps I was just a bit of a loon. I really don't know. I, I would sort of take it, I, I wouldn't really take it personally. It always felt like, oh gosh, maybe I just didn't explain my concept well enough or, you know, this is just so exciting. Perhaps I didn't, perhaps they don't really understand or maybe it's not their space, but it never really wore me down. I was so passionate. I had this unwavering belief in, in the vision that I had and I knew that I was going to find somebody that would support that vision. And so I was never completely deterred. Um, it was exhausting. I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't um, a draining experience because, you know, nobody wants rejections. But at no point did I feel deflated to the point that I was like, right, I'm going to stop this. I, I, it had to be done. I was so passionate about what I was doing. I, I knew it was a question of time. So it was a question of when, really, N not really. It wasn't really about if. Have you had any lucky breaks in the business or serendipitous moments at all? I am not a big believer in the concept of luck, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. I know a lot of founders will say, probably they're probably a lot more humble than I am. Um, I think they'll probably say that, you know, yes, there are lots of lucky breaks. And I think, well, probably not, actually. I think that in some way, shape or form, you have to really create something which is, you know, providing people with a value add. That's the first thing. I think... What I've had is I've I've been really lucky, I would say, yes, lucky in the context that I've had some amazing people around me who I call my first movers, who really believed in the business quite early on, actually. And I am so eternally grateful for their support. And I'm so grateful that they could see my vision. And I wouldn't say it was, I wouldn't say it was pure luck that they saw it. I think that they understood my industry and they could see the passion that I had and they supported that. And I think it was that support that really helped the business to grow and it really helped us sort of propel to the next stage. Um, so I would say it was a more of a supportive thing rather than a luck situation. But you have, I mean, you did have a phenomenal pickup by sort of supermodels and A-listers. Mm. And I mean, you know, that is, 
I mean, that's down to product, I suppose, but you were potentially fortuitous that it landed in their hands. Yeah, I mean, that is that is true. We were selling at a venue at that time in Oxford Circus where it was getting picked up by, it had a very high footfall and a lot of people, a lot of celebrities were going in and out of this store. And so unbeknown to me at the time, actually, um, the word of mouth amongst the celebrity circuit was already out there. And I literally had no idea about this till I was sat in my Quite honestly, it was a 100 square foot office with one other member of staff and um, (laughs) getting a call from a major celebrities team saying, you know, she's in love with the product. Can you bike some over? And of course, we were screaming at this point saying, oh, my gosh, how could this happen? And, you know, the feedback that we got was that, you know, the, the pigments that went into the foundation are actually very different to what's out there. And I think that really what got us noticed was this differentiating factor. And that's where all the disruptive element of the brand came in. You know, we curated a range of golden yellow pigments as opposed to the traditional pigments that all brands are using, actually. So we disrupted at the pigment level. And we sort of got pick up from celebrities, I think, because they could see that the offering was just distinctive, that when they'd put it on, it didn't look like anything else they'd used before. And that, I think, spread quite quickly, actually. There was one particular celebrity who actually I had, you know, a, a conversation with, the, with the, you know, with in the end, and I didn't, I didn't know any of them before this. And she actually said to me, you know, reached out to me only because of the brand and said, I just want you to know that, you know, I absolutely love this product. And we actually have makeup parties privately and all the supermodels had got together and she'd presented it to some of them. So that was really lovely, actually. And I think the word of mouth situation was not just with celebrities. I think it was really, the word was getting out there with with everyday people as well. And I think that was just because of the point of differentiation on the products and that the, 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 the colours were just so different. And that it's affordable too. Yeah, definitely. And I think my vision was always about creating something that was accessible for absolutely everybody. You know, Amelia, it's one of those things that, you know, I I felt that, you know, one of one of the things that really matters to me actually is just integrity, not just in a personal capacity without sounding all sanctimonious about it, but also in a professional capacity. You know, there's a lot of noise out there in the industry, but 85% of cosmetics claims are not true. And the markups and products are you know, it's it's extortionate, mm. actually. And when I began to research the industry and actually looked at the difference in the cost between the highest end foundation and actually an average what's known as a drugstore foundation, quite often they're coming from exactly the same place. It's not an urban myth. It's absolutely true. Without getting too technical about it, you know, the only difference is the emulsifiers, what's called the emulsifiers and the texturizers. That equates to the difference of about one euro And we use the best of both. So actually, at ingredient level, at the raw material level, we are extremely high quality. And I felt that that was something that I wanted to give back to people because I just feel quite strongly that everybody, every every person has got the right to really feel their best growing up with skin that, you know, it wasn't awful. It was just somewhat a little bit sensitive. I knew what that felt like. And... I wanted to give people the opportunity to feel their best on days where they wanted to feel like they needed a bit of a confidence boost. It would be great to hear, Farah, how you and your team have pivoted during the pandemic, because from what I understand, you were saying 96% or around that number of your sales are from in-store purchases with that sort of try it, touch it concept. How have you survived the pandemic 
Well, prior to the pandemic, I think that was pretty much an industry figure for cosmetics, actually. And it's quite a hard one to believe, but that's what the latest market reports were showing, that 60% of all cosmetics are really sold in bricks and mortar outlets. And, you know, like most other businesses, COVID was massively challenging. I think because it was so unprecedented, because it came from nowhere and nobody really knew the direction it was going to take. Um, I was just extremely lucky because I have a phenomenal team, actually, that at the heart of it, were just very entrepreneurial. And they were quite unflappable, actually, where they were not, you know, they, they didn't panic, they didn't flap. All of us kept a super level head and just went into sort of strategy mode about how we were going to dig a hole out of this. And um, we just took a very measured approach. No one really panicked. We sort of looked back and think, you know, wow, how did we, how do we navigate that situation? Because at the end of it, we actually thankfully came out quite well. I think because the product is, you know, the foundation, sort of our hero product is a 1250 foundation, we actually found that a lot of people were pivoting from higher-end brands to our products. So there was that element that did that did make that difference. But yes, it, it was challenging to say the least, um, but we're just very, very fortunate that we, that we survived and that we were still able to grow. And I am very grateful for my team, actually, because it, it was one of the most testing times, I think, like most businesses um, for us as well. It's interesting because the founders that I've been talking to over the pandemic, I mean, maybe it's the industries, but it's a total cross-section of industries, have said there have been upsides where they've seen, you know, really good uptakes of their business. And then other areas of their business have sort of just parked up while while the pandemic's going on. Mm-hmm. But luckily, they've sort of balanced out. So it's it's interesting to, to hear that. Um Farah, you've said that you're a big believer in creating businesses that are painkillers, not vitamins. <laughs> Would you tell us a little bit more about that belief? I think fundamentally, I, I'm not a big believer in saying, right, I want to start a business. Anyone got any good ideas? I just don't think that's what business is about. I think that it's about how can you add value and how can you solve a problem today that a large number of people are facing? And if you face that problem and you instinctively have an understanding for it and you know that a lot of other people are facing that problem and you think you can make that problem go away or you can reduce the problem and there's a value add for people, that's where I think really successful businesses lie. So for me, those are the sort of businesses which are must-haves, not nice-to-haves. And I would say that, you know, vitamin businesses are more nice-to-have and maybe some nice-to-have businesses are the ones that unfortunately, at times like a pandemic, may not be able to weather a storm. But those must-have products or those must-have services that really add value to someone's life those are the ones that I think founders really get behind and are most passionate about because they're so necessary and they're so important. What skill set would you say that you've required to build and grow X1? I'm not sure if being a loon is a skill set. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're a loon. Somehow, Farah, I really kick that one out of the bucket. Thanks, Amelia. Deluded? No, I think I think, to be honest, you just have to really have this absolute unwavering belief in, in, a, in a vision. I think you have to just have massive amounts of, of passion. And 
I think when you have that, you know, there there is a certain resilience that comes with that because when the going gets tough, you always, you know, pivot back to your vision and you think, right, but hold on, why am I doing this? Oh, yes, I'm doing it because this could really be game-changing for so many people. And that's really the motivating force. So I think that the skill, I think, I don't know if it's a skill, I would just say bags of passion, probably probably being a bit strong-willed. I'm not sure if that will comes from the fact that I'm so passionate about what I do. But, but I suppose as well, just being somebody that's quite creative. I'm not one to accept the status quo. I will always ask questions about absolutely everything. I mean, I can just sit there driving myself mad, Googling, you know, questions that come into my head. But, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely do believe in, in asking questions. I think questions drive change. And I'm not sure if that equates as a skill, but probably those are the two things that I, I did, which got the business to where it was. Talking about change, how do you as a business support climate change and sustainability? Because there must be quite a bit of packaging, though it's far from single use. Yeah. So we don't have any secondary packaging with any of our products because we feel they're completely unnecessary. I think it is very much a priority for us. And as time goes on, we're building out plans as to how we can become more sustainable we certainly do have certain values that we hold very dear. You know, we've been vegan right since I started. I'm personally not vegan myself at all, but I wanted to build something that was vegan and, you know, completely cruelty-free. We've turned down, well, I've personally turned down very lucrative contracts in countries where animal testing is required by law. And at that time, it was you know, they, they, those offers felt quite large because we were quite small. Mm. But it does come back to the fact that, you know, you have to... I wanted to build a business where I could sleep at night. So I think, yes, you know, we we have, retrain, we have retained certain values that are dear to us. And, you know, cruelty-free, being vegan, and actually sustainability is something that we are really looking at how we can cons- constantly improve in that area. How would you say that you cope out of your comfort zone with sort of uncertainty? I think uncertainty is just at the heart of any entrepreneurial business. I mean, you are very much in uncharted territory. Pretty much, honestly, every single day you're faced with something new. And that comes back to the fact that especially when you're going through a lot of change, that's normal. I remember, you know, talking to a friend a while ago and saying, gosh, I'm constantly putting out fires. And she said, oh my gosh, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, everything's absolutely fine. It's just part and parcel of that growth. And Actually, if you don't have those challenges and you don't have that uncertainty, then something might not be going in the right direction. So I think as time goes on, you sort of learn to live with it, actually. At the beginning, uncertainty and fear, I think, are quite linked together. Mm-hmm. And as you grow and as you realize that, gosh, I, 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 I had a problem last time, I, I was really worried about it. In the end, it wasn't so bad. It does give the confidence to say, right, you know, I'll get through this. And you just get better and better at it. And I think the trick is really, I always say it's about, you know, running a business, especially one like this, is you get incredible highs and then you get incredible, I don't want to call them lows, I'd say incredible. No, but you do, yeah, there are dips for sure. Yeah, I I like to call them incredible highs and incredible challenges, probably is the best way of saying it. And I think the trick is to never get really excited when things are going well and to never get too sad when things are challenging and you have to sort of balance your emotions so you're sort of cruising in the middle and I think if you can maintain that balance and that measure in the long term it's less of a roller coaster 
And I think that helps, that certainly helped me deal with the sort of ever-changing face of running a startup. Do you ever feel frustrated at all? Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm told by my team that I'm extremely calm and I'm very, very laid back um, as a person. And most of my friends and family would describe me the same way. So I think people out there that are listening, that even probably close to me, probably, probably find it surprising that, of course, you know, that, that I am saying I get frustrated. I do. But I think that you have to really be able to manage that and turn that sort of negative feeling into something which is going to drive something positive. And I think that sometimes all you really need to do is, my personal thing is I go for a run or you need mm-hmm. to just break away from the challenge or the frustration for a short while just to allow yourself time to think. So I will break away. I'd like to, I, you know, I'll go away. I'll, I'll, I'll cook up a plan or a strategy and then I'll just get back to it. So I think everybody feels frustration. I think you just have to learn to manage it. And I think that what can be quite damaging and what I'm not a fan of at all, and I try and make sure I don't do this, is that I think it's never wise if you're feeling frustrated to then just pass that frustration on to other people. I think that's just so counterproductive and so deeply unfair on the people around you. So I try and make sure that before I then go on to interact with someone else about that frustrating situation, that I've got myself to a point where I can communicate as well as I possibly can. It's that whole thing, as you say, of shifting the energy, you know, like you go for a run, I go for a walk or I do Pilates or something, because otherwise there is that danger where your frustration can turn into this sort of agitated person and you do take it out on people that you really don't want to be taking it out on. Completely agree. It is biochemical at the end of the day, you know. As you would know, <laughs> you would understand all yeah, this. I mean, you know, it, it is that whole sort of adrenaline, cortisol type um, situation going on. And I think that, you know, just as you're saying, walking, running, doing something, distracting yourself really helps to bring those levels back into check. So I think there is that side of just getting a handle on it as much as you can and just being aware enough to think, right, take stock, breathe, do something else for a little while and then come back to it. I know of my first business, my chocolate business, I had so much adrenaline racing around now. Mm. I think I've, I've burnt it out. I don't, I don't <laughs> have. So I feel in a much more sort of phlegmatic mm. role. But um, you, there you go. So, Farah, do you ever have that sort of inner critic, that negative chit chat that goes on in your head? And if you do, what do you do about it? I think that that's something that really improves with time, actually. And I think that if I was ever going to go back to my younger self, I would actually say, stop being so hard on yourself. I think as I've gotten older, I'm definitely a lot harder on myself with the negative talk. I'm more aware if I'm doing it. I Certainly when I was younger, I, I had a lot of visions. I wanted to do things and I was quite impatient about getting things done. And that can really put a pressure on yourself. And yes, absolutely, that that can turn into sort of negative self-talk. But I definitely think the older that you get, for, for me at least anyway, and, and, and a lot of my friends, I think you become more and more comfortable in your own skin. And I think you just become a bit more gentle on yourself because you've, and, and I don't want to make this all about age because lots of young people go through all sorts of situations. But I think that when life happens, it allows you to grow as a person. It allows you to put things back into, concept, into context. Mm-hmm. And when you put things back into context, you're able to to sort of, you know, stop yourself doing that self-talk and say, is it really that important? Does it really matter that much? Or what values do I really hold dear? 
So, you know, over time, I think that I've managed to minimize that. It never completely goes away, but but I, I've definitely managed to sort of really man- minimize that. I think it definitely, definitely diminishes with age and experience too. Mm. So what would you say that you've learned about yourself, Farah? Wow, that's such a good question. What have I learned my, about myself? I think I've realized that I am able to survive, actually, which sounds like quite a basic thing to say. But I, I've realized that I've got the ability to adapt to change, which at the heart of it is what entrepreneurial business is all about. It's the ability to adapt to change. And when you are a founder of a company, it's not just your business, it's actually yourself as well. Because when you're running a company like, like, you know, like a startup company, which is extremely challenging, you know, it's not a big organization where you're sort of doing similar things every day, you know, you realize that you could be going through something quite traumatic or quite difficult in your personal life and your business is just going on regardless. So I've learned that actually I I can adapt. I've realized that I can survive. I think I've realized what matters to me in life, which is things like friends, uh, family, all of those other things, you know, great health, Mm -hmm. enjoying nature. Those are the real things that I hold really, really closely to me. And then I'm super, you know, ridiculously passionate about my business. But I always remind myself that life has for me personally, there's always a higher meaning, there's always a higher purpose. And I would say I've, 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 as, as years go on, I, I really get closer and closer to what my higher purpose is um, and what are the values that I really hold dear. So I think I've been able to identify those more closely. And what do you feel your higher purpose is at this stage, if you're happy <laughs> to share that? I mean, gosh, I made that sound all quite dramatic. Um, I would just say it's the value system that you hold dear. And I think that it's just about putting putting things in a sort of, I suppose, a pecking order, that things that you really stress about, things that you really worry about. You know, um, my, my business is my baby, but actually, you know, family, friends, those are the things that I think I truly value the most. And it's about finding time in your life to do things that, you know, the things that really, really energize you. And the business absolutely does that. But when you're running a startup company, it's, we're not so much of a startup now, but I think that it's really important that you um, make time in your life to do other things that energize you. So you have, so that your life is more balanced. And I think that I've learned more about that, I suppose, about how to balance my life in a way that it gives me personally more meaning. So now we're going to head into the quick fire round before our very exciting chocolate (laughs) break. So optimist or pessimist? Optimist. Introvert, extrovert or ambivert? Probably closer to an introvert. (laughs) Really? Interesting. I mean, my friends would say otherwise, but I do like my time alone. And uh, But yeah, maybe ambivert, don't know. Perfectionist (laughs) or non-perfectionist? Perfectionist, unfortunately. (laughs) Early bird or night owl? Very much an early bird. So now we're tucking into a chocolate break. And I'm really excited about this chocolate break because it has a little tender side Mm. to it, which Farah is going to tell us about. So we are about to tuck into Bachi Kisses from Mm. Perugia in Italy that actually were created back in 1922. And what is so sweet is that they have little love notes in the wrapper. 
which to me has just made my whole day because I think I've eaten them before. I know I have, and I haven't even noticed. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> a little love note that would have been put in. So, Farah, you're tucking into yours. Tell mm. me what your love note says. Right, I'm just unwrapping this now. So I actually discovered these when, so I work a lot in Italy because our cosmetics come from there. So that's when I discovered Barchi. And I absolutely adore them. So this little note says, one of the greatest comforts of life is friendship. And that's a quote by somebody called Alessandro Manzoni. How lovely. Mm. Mine says, it's high time to rekindle the stars by Wolfgang Goethe. So that's really deep. That sounds very deep. I don't quite know what it means, but that I'm does happy sound to quite profound. profound. <laughs> sounds quite exciting in my book. Right, I was just about to get dis- distracted and bite into this. So while mm. I'm biting into it, would you mm-hmm. share with us what the words success and failure mean to you at this stage? Wow. Failure, I think, means lots of things to lots of people. I'm not really sure I ever really say that I I failed. I think I sort of live in a denial denial a little bit. I think that it's really about, you know, picking yourself up and starting again. I think if you are able to do that, then you've never really failed because you were able to keep going. And I think by keeping going, that is very much the definition of working towards success. I think success from a business context really varies a lot from people to people. It could be just getting your your brand out there or hit a distribution milestone. To investors, it's all about, you know, it's all about the numbers. Um, for me, it's about really uh, getting the brand out there to enough people to know that I've made a difference and I know that I've left a little dent in the industry Um just to make it just a little bit more inclusive, a bit more accessible to people that maybe weren't getting what they wanted before. Okay, we're going to dip into your well-being, Farah. How important is incorporating well-being into your day and do you manage to achieve it? I try my absolute best. So I'm quite big on exercise. I run half an hour every morning, pretty much every morning. And that just is my time where I'm able to think and actually make some really big decisions because I'm able to run and you can't you can't really be stressed when you're running. So it's a really good time to actually make those big decisions. I also do practice, not in any big way, but I do a little bit of mindfulness. So I try and do 15 minutes a day if I can fit it in. I do think it's incredibly helpful, actually. I think I need to do more of it, but I would definitely recommend it from what I've done. Have you changed the way that you look after yourself over the years, do you think? Yeah, I think I have. I think when you're younger, you're just a bit more, well, actually, sort of actually when I was younger, I think um, people weren't as health conscious as they are today. So now lots of people um, who, who are quite young are just so health conscious, which I think is amazing. Um, yeah, I think I, I as, as time's gone on, I, I've always been relatively health conscious, but I think I've incorporated a lot more exercise and um, the mindfulness is, is, is kind of new as well. And you're what, you're in your 40s, are you? I am. I am in my 40s. So just to backpedal a bit, you set up mm. your the first side of the business in when in your 20s. Yeah. So when what was the date when you sort of pepped it all up and relaunched it? 2000 and... So we relaunched the business back in 2014. And it was April of 2014. We launched on lookfantastic.com as our first retail partner. What would you say triggers your stress and how does it affect you physically, mentally, spiritually? 
I think when you're running a business, I think anything can trigger stress. Um, I find now that stress in my life comes less from the business actually and more if like anybody you know you have a more of a personal situation if a mm. friend or a family member is affected by something I think that stresses me out far more than the business ever will but over time I've really learned to deal with stress I think again maybe I don't know if it's age or if it's just experience but you do you do realize that actually stress can be quite unproductive worry is equally or much more unproductive I've learned lots of techniques to, 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 to deal with stress, like I keep mentioning the running, but I do find that incredibly helpful. So I think stress can come from so many different sources that it's, it's just good to have a few tricks up your sleeve as to how to deal with it if it does happen. And would you share with us any other tricks up your sleeve <laughs> <laughs> Wow, to, that um, you have to hand? I, I think probably, really, I'm a believer in living in the moment, actually. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, when you wake up in the morning, you know, I, I try and first of all, look forward to the day and think, what am I going to achieve this day? What what can I do in the next 24 hours, which is actually going to drive some change? And also, I think it's important that, you know, as, as people, we spend so much of our time, you know, worrying about issues of the past. And we're so fearful of the future, that actually, we carry all those burdens today. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we're able to compartmentalize just today, and not worry about the issues of yesterday and not worry about the fears that we have tomorrow, it really allows you to perform much more successfully. So I think that a, a way of looking at it is to sort of compartmentalize the day and really live in the moment and be present. Do you ever have problems with sleeping at all? I do have problems with sleeping. I think like pretty much everybody it hasn't been huge, um, but I think I've gone through phases where it was more of a problem. But if I'm quite honest, I spend an awful lot of time in Italy where they have literally probably the best coffee in the world, I think. <laughs> it's my experience. And I, I, I think I was just massively overdosed on really good coffee. <laughs> and is that because your products are made in Milan? Are they made? They are made in Milan. They are. They are made in Milan. So Italy is sort of like a home away from home for me. So I visit the labs quite a lot out there and spend an awful lot of time out in Milan, which I can't really complain about because I absolutely love Italy and Italian people are just amazing to be around. So yeah, I, 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 I picked up my coffee habit there and I think that probably led to my insomnia. Yeah, because the other chocolate that Farah suggested was uh, coffee pockets which are amazing little shots of coffee <laughs> and yes Milan is is amazing place my foil supplier for my chocolate bars mm. uh, used to come from a little artisan in Milan and so any excuse to fly <laughs> to fly out there I was on a plane definitely so, so um on the sleep side though what do you do if you can't sleep how do you reset your clock or do you get up and just get start the day early? Yeah, I don't know if it's sort of the scientist in me. I get quite practical, actually. So I make sure that the curtains are drawn. I make sure that I'm not having coffee after sort of, you know, 2, 3 p.m. I do take magnesium, which I find is an amazing sort of uh, mineral to help you relax. So I, th I think magnesium is a great one. I'm a big believer in anything herbal like chamomile tea. So I think I become quite practical and I take those types of steps. And I think meditation and things like that can also help if I feel that it's um, stress and worry that is at the root of my insomnia. So yeah, it's a, it's a combination of being practical and mindful at the same time. What music makes you feel good? And what book, if you're a reader, would you miss if it mm. wasn't on your bookshelf? 
Music-wise, I think my taste is really quite varied and I think I really tend to tune into whatever my mood is at at that point. So I quite like Bossa Nova at the moment if I'm like, if I'm working and I just want something quite nice in the background. Couldn't really name lots of artists. I just sort of have it playing in the background, which is quite nice, but equally, you know, something which is more upbeat and uplifting, especially when I'm running. In terms of books, gosh, I do read, I have to say, an awful lot of books. And this probably makes me sound quite boring. I do read an awful lot of business books, actually. Um, I can read up to three a week. I will gosh, skim you're read them. you're a fast them. reader. I sort of skim read them. And what I do okay. when, I, when I'm really busy is I will, I'll buy the book and I'll, I'll download the audio version at the same time. So, I mean, well, I used to do this more pre-pandemic where I'd actually, you know, if I was, you know, stuck on a train, I'd quickly put in the audio version. And then when I'd get you know, back into the office, I'd, I'd skip, I'd, I'd skim through the book and really hone in on the areas that were important. And I think books for me, from a business point perspective, have been invaluable because sometimes, especially when the company is smaller, you can't always get consultants. You know, you can't always get the best consultants. I mean, now we're lucky that we do have amazing expert advice, but it's a really good way to educate yourself very, very quickly on all the aspects of the business. So that's been that's been an amazing tool for me. Reading has been invaluable. I used to read lots of sort of novels, fiction, uh, non-fiction, read some amazing books about all sorts of geeky books about science. Yeah, I will pretty much, um, it's, it's pretty varied. Farrah, where have you had to have had hope and also patience, would you say? I think hope and patience is something that you perpetually have to have in a startup. So I would say both of those are traits uh, that I've had to strengthen as the business has grown. I would say, you know, going back to business from a funding perspective, these things don't always close on time. And that can be quite worrying when you're, you know, when you're a younger business, because you are really relying on things like funding and closing funding rounds has always been, you know, in the, well, especially in the past has always been a source of stress. And that's where the hope comes into it as well. But I, but I think, you know, in life in general, you know, it always throws curveballs. And I've been through lots and of lots of ups and downs in, in, you know, in a personal capacity as well. And I have really learned that hope is absolutely critical. And it's not worth it's not worth ever getting to a point where you don't have any hope, actually. And I think a lot of people can get to that point. I think I've been close to sort of a point where I'm just like, wow, you know, things seem have, have seemed quite sort of challenging. And you you have to have the hope, I think, because it, it really can be what keeps you going. And eventually it will get you over to the other side. Absolutely. What advice would you give to people who are thinking of setting up their own business or perhaps in the early stages? I think if you have an idea that you think is compelling, I would say go for it and do plenty of research. So try and find a British library or, or equivalent, do lots and lots of research and don't be put off by the competition, however huge it seems. If you feel you have a compelling idea, if you feel as if you're not really getting the answers that you want when you ask certain questions, you're probably onto something. And finally, where can our listeners hear the latest about your products, find out more about you, also keep up to speed because I think you've got a TED Talk in the wings coming out soon? I, I am working on a TED Talk um, over the summer. Yeah, we're rolling out into more superdrug stores. So we're now in about 250 stores nationwide. Um, so you can find us on their website or just on our website, which is www.ex1cosmetics.com.
and follow you on social media. Of course. Yeah. I would love to say the hugest of thank yous to you, Farah. It has been such a treat to chat with you. I feel that I could chat with you for hours and hours and (laughs) hours. Um, So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Amelia. I feel exactly the same way. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to meet for a coffee, I think. We are. (laughs) Anyway, before I go, it's time for my recommendation, which today is my morning fix, my morning must have, and also the quote. So my recommendation is the way to kickstart your day is you get a slice of unwaxed lemon a chunk of ginger which you peel and finely grate and you put them in hot water and I have two to three mugs of this every morning before breakfast before my coffee and I just find it really amazing so that's that's my recommendation and the quote is by John Lennon when you do something noble and beautiful and nobody noticed do not be sad for the sun every morning is a beautiful spectacle and yet most of the audience still sleeps. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it, or better still, share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.